In search of net zero energy system, welcome to Energy Current. I'm your host Zhao Ang. Today, our guest is Mr. Aditya Ramji. Aditya, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Zhang, for having me. So, before our discussion, I would like to introduce、uh, Mr. Ramji.、Uh, Aditya is an economist focusing on energy, transport, and low-carbon mobility. He has had over ten years of working experience across both. Policy research and the private sector, especially in the automaking industry. Aditya is now pursuing his PhD in transport and technology、uh, at the University of California at Davis. He also got a role in couple months ago, a new role, leading the California Indian、uh, Zero Emission Vehicle Policy Collaboration Program as director. So it's a great time for me to discuss some Indian. Transport sector policies. So let's start.、Uh, the f- first question I would like to start about the transport sector development history in India. So what do you see about the、uh, development of the zero waste、uh, vehicles in the past ten years in India?、Uh, how do you assess、uh, the progress? I、uh, know that's actually、uh, you know、uh, a good question and I and and、uh, a story probably not very often told. Um, and but I think you know in the last decade India has come a very long way、uh, with regards to zero emission vehicles. I mean you know way back in 2010 was also the time when India framed its early stages of the national action plan on climate change, all of that stuff. There was a lot of focus on the electricity sector back then. But I think since about 2014 or 15, India really started you know taking some More concrete actions towards、uh, road transport decarbonization, and from an electric vehicle perspective, I think today the national policy framework has evolved to kind of have a demand incentive program that gives purchase subsidies for EVs. There is a manufacturing incentive program, or what they call as a production-linked incentive scheme (PLI) for both EV and EV components as well as battery manufacturing. And then, very recently, I mean, India's had a cafe regulation for light-duty vehicles、uh, in operation over the last few years. But actually, in August this year,、uh, India has also amended the legislation to now Im- include a penalty for automakers for non-compliance of cafe standards. So I think all of this together, hopefully, you know, will will kind of help you know spur the EV market. But in the last ten years, also, what has happened is. Apart, while India does not have a national EV target, many states in India have set their own, you know, EV policies. So about 25 uh, states um, in India now have some EV policy in some form, and actually 21 states out of that have the, have kind of set their own ambitions for electric vehicle targets in different segments across two wheelers, three wheelers, cars, and and so on. So if you actually look at that, then there is, you know. Uh, 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 like a bottom-up build-up of of national ambition, and and so that's kind of where India stands today. But I think the one good positive story out of that is today India's、uh, three-wheeler sales in as of 2022. We're now you know over close to or over 55 percent new sales this year are actually electric in the three-wheeler segment, and I think that's a good story. And and you know the idea is that all these policy efforts will kind of Have spillover effects on other sectors.、Mm-hmm. So, regarding what you just mentioned, I have to、uh, add-on question. Firstly, about the three wheelers in India, those vehicles are the very mainstream vehicles to provide the 
a mobility services that's right and and two and three wheelers uh, you know form a very strong part of india's mobility story now three wheelers have always been a very core part of first and last mile transit for many people both in urban and rural areas and then two wheelers uh, have almost you know been the first access of personal mobility for many people in india you know given the lower levels of affordability etc and many households actually go entire lifetimes owning just two wheelers as their only form of personal mobility so uh, and, and if you look at you know volume terms india sells anywhere between 12 to 15 million uh, two wheelers annually give and take you know depending on the state of the economy so yes i mean and and i think if you look at the indian policy uh, framework in many ways it's targeted towards prioritizing electrification of two and three wheelers and yeah. i think that's a good strategy in many ways and it takes decarbonization potentially right down to the masses yeah so uh, related to the the first question i want to touch another big uh, issue you know due to the pandemic uh, and also the uh, the slowing down globalization and the, the global supply chain has been a very different phase restructuring uh, in many ways and i mentioned about the potential strategic competition between uh EU China Japan US and now i think india is joining the game participating in the game so how do you predict from now to 2030 india's zero emission vehicle manufacturing can become very uh competitive uh, compared to other existing big players that's an excellent question and and it's also a tricky question right uh, and it requires many things to happen but let's let's look at it like this you know india is today the fourth largest manufacturer of automobiles in the world right across light and, and medium heavy duty vehicles uh, and it you know it's in that club with china us japan and below india is south korea so you know the same countries that you were talking about that have also now taken steps towards uh, reorienting their zev manufacturing strategy um i think in that context one thing that india did do during the pandemic uh, and much like most other economies realized that it is an opportunity to relook at manufacturing strategy at supply chain you know uh, at in india's role in the global supply chain and so what india did was you know it it set up a government industry committee um in 2020 i remember um which was focused on kind of scaling manufacturing looking at value add addition and 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 strategic uh, roles that india can play in emerging technology sectors including including electric vehicles and and that kind of translated into the production linked incentive scheme i was mentioning earlier on which is you know providing significant incentives um and i think if my math is right i think the cumulative incentives given take exchange rates is anywhere between 4 to 5 billion us dollars um in manufacturing incentives for evs ev components and cell manufacturing and that's one of the largest such programs i think globally at this point and and india and that's reflective right of india's uh, efforts to continue to strengthen its role in the global zev transition value chain and you're right in pointing out that as india kind of strengthens this it also needs to take into account what's happening in the markets that india exports to also so you know india is a relatively large exporter of vehicle and vehicle components to the us to mexico south africa thailand global south parts of the eu uh, and so as these markets also regulate and push towards their transitions 
India will also have to re-strategize and that will have to reflect in our um, domestic automobile companies and, program, and, and policy programs to be able to kind of remain competitive uh, for, as an export base for, uh, for ZEV and ZEV ecosystems as we, as we move along. But I think to some extent, India is also already emerging as a strong you know, base for manufacturing for global manufacturers uh, as uh, as they use that as a base to be able to supply manufacturing supply components and, and and other parts to other economies, including in 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 the West and in the in the global South. So I think I think there is already uh, a lot of that, but but yes, and I think that will play a key role. Um, and I think from a supply chain perspective, I think there is also the aspect that you know India as it builds is battery manufacturing program, et cetera, there is a whole critical minerals narrative that will that will have to be taken care of. And I think, you know, that requires a whole different strategy. That also means that, you know, we're well aware that a lot of the critical minerals are controlled by a few economies and there's present in only some parts of the world. So that will require India to also strategically look at its geopolitical and trade relations, et cetera, to kind of be able to leverage that. So I think that's that's the way I would see but just to kind of make this maybe more interesting, uh, you know, um, and uh, in terms of ZEV targets for India in 2030 and how even the domestic market can help spur a lot of this production and signals. If I were to look from today as a business as usual scenario over the next eight years for India, I think in 2030, we're probably looking at about a little over a quarter of new sales and two-wheelers being electric, about 80 to 90% of three-wheeler sales being electric and maybe about another quarter or so in light duty vehicles. So that, that would be my call today, BAU. And then, you know, hopefully some of these policy efforts will kick in and only make it go higher. Yeah. So for California, for EU, even for China, I think they started to develop their industry earlier and also relatively they have a higher economic development levels. So I want to ask you, if the government of India want to uh, apply the similar policy lessons like in, the, in California and uh, other uh, EU countries. How does the government of India uh, make balance between, I mean, still in the very quick development, have to provide the energy security and make sure the energy price is uh, affordable, at the same time have to uh, allocate a lot of resources and policy initiative and the financial uh, stimulates uh, to the industry to uh, help uh, the ZAB industry. So how do you assess that uh, dilemma? Uh, that's a good dilemma, right, to have, I guess. Uh, but also, let, I mean, I think from an India perspective, a, a strategy, um, and, and also if we were to draw lessons from, you know, the California experience, EU and, and China, uh, I think, of course, I mean, one important thing is that India has now set a net zero goal officially as part of its NDC submission that they just did as an update. Uh, about a month or two ago uh, with a with net zero target for 2017. Now, while India does not go specifically into mentioning sectoral targets, but obviously we know that power sector, transportation and buildings will probably play a key role in that decarbonization net zero story. And the question then is, I think one is we need to probably understand what this net zero means from a vehicle electrification perspective in terms of how many and, and what timeline, and then be able to translate that a step lower in being able to, you know, set some sales targets or mandates in different segments, which can create strong market signals. Now, like I was telling you, you know, 
there are easy to electrify segments like two and three wheelers where india can actually set you know uh, some mandates and sales targets and really spur the industry in three wheelers you know we're already more than half new vehicle sales is electric so to say that india it wants to set a target of let's say 80% electric three wheelers by 2030 should not be very hard to achieve right so we can actually you know use that zev mandate as the as a lever to push that final you know growth spurt to kind of unlock the market and we can do the same thing for two wheelers and actually even do this for urban freight or or like ride hailing fleets you know where you can set that a minimum number of vehicles each year need to be electric and i think those can play a very good role in in kind of spurring the market and and this is kind of what california and china and the eu done right over time in different forms and ways of setting their sales mandates and targets um, then the second the third piece would of course we we spoke about strategic partnerships and critical minerals etc so i think there is question but then also question of cell chemistry choices so for example within lithium ion chemistries you know lfp is an option that is less exposed to the volatility in critical mineral markets so maybe there is an opportunity for india to look at that as a strategy and kind of you know uh, while we continue to do r and d on new, other new chemistries as an alternative to nmc and then also india has announced a hydrogen mission uh, recently which i think has also kind of you know opened the discussion on alternative fuels for low carbon transport and opened a discussion on what is the strategies that we can look at especially in some of the hard to abate segments like heavy duty trucking where you know maybe electric trucking may not be the may not be the most viable solution in all applications so then things like hydrogen etc can play a key role and i think one thing i would definitely mention as a strategy is we do need in india to move a step further into overall transport planning because electric road transport and electrification is one part there is also other modes and mode shifts and mode shares that need to be considered and i think we need to look at all of that then in that larger context and framing it in that way would probably help uh, strategize the roadmap further but like you said in in the larger global context i think the way i look at it it's it's like a dynamic equilibrium model right uh, it's not about one country It, it it's it's a global push so as more countries reorient their strategies towards low carbon transitions uh countries like india will also have to reorient if not for the domestic market but to remain competitive in the global value chain before i touch the more whole holistic uh, planning of the transport decarbonization i want to Uh, ask another very um, relevant question in, in current time the cop 27 in egypt i know last year in glasgow indian uh, delegation uh, has performed very well i mean i think uh, the government also committed to work on the uh, the coal uh, redu- reduction in the future but not the really facing out coal in the timeline the uh, target but at at least a really uh, active Uh, secondly the delegation of india also mentioned about the carbon neutrality before 2070 uh, mm-hmm. thirdly related to the transport sector and uh, really focus on the uh, electrification of the transport sector and the uh, decarbonizing the road transport sector so i know you had been involved with the uh, climate change negotiation delegation from india in the past so how how do you evaluate 
in this year, uh, when the global climate change negotiation is in the shadow of the global energy crisis and uh, even uh, global inflation uh, on record, I mean, recorded a very high level of the global inflation and the economic recession uh, just inside. So under under this kind of the uh, difficulties, uh, would you think Indian government will continue to improve its targets on the transport sector carbonation and also fulfill its promise, uh, like from last year? What what do you think about uh, Indian's uh, government's responses in this uh, climate change conference? I don't think that the global energy crisis currently or the you know the the issue in in Europe or uh, or inflation uh, pressures and recession are going to be reasons why we should not be doing climate action. And I don't think that is the narrative either. If at all anything, I think we've learned from the last two two and a half years that there is a, a greater need to tackle climate risks and kind of you know within shorter time frames, and we need higher ambition and action. And to that extent, you know, you know, some of India's efforts on like the, the manufacturing incentive program, some of the other regulations, and also what it's been doing from a larger global uh, platform positioning is is uh, is reflective of the fact that they are very clear that that this is an issue that that will continue to have priority. And it's not something that will take a backseat. Um, but having said that, I think uh, one thing that India is going into COP this year is also the fact that we have submitted a revised NDC. Uh, we've set the net zero 2070 target. We've 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 uh, um, set a higher uh, GDP emission intensity reduction target, which you which earlier was 33 to 35 percent. Now it's been revised to 45 percent from 2005 levels, and uh, and then obviously some higher ambitions on renewable energy penetration. But what India does not do. Um, as part of the NDCs highlight specific commitments on electrification, uh, but I but I think that the actions we're taking domestically are kind of reflective of that as well. So, uh, but one critical issue that will remain, uh, and that has probably remained for a few years now, and and is only becoming more and more, uh, let's say, you know, critical to the success of uh, climate negotiations, is the issue of climate finance uh, and technology access, right? And I think developing countries, including India. Uh, are now expecting that the West will kind of play its part in ensuring that the commitments they have already made uh, on climate finance since the Paris Agreement uh, should actually be be met. Uh, and the costs of these transitions are not going to be low. So these are going to come at, at a certain price for many economies. And the thing is that climate change is not going to wait for anyone. So it's not like India or China or any of the global South countries have uh, another hundred years to to kind of deal with this issue. We will all globally have to deal with it within the same time frame, but uh, which means that some of the emerging economies like India will uh, have a steeper curve that they will have to climb in terms of transition costs. And so I think the issue of climate finance will always remain uh, critical. Um, and I think that if uh, the developed economies are able to actually, you know, break the shackles on that and be able to show a little more, um, you know, come a few steps forward on that. Uh, I think countries like India and others can actually reciprocate with even higher ambitions to be able to meet uh, those goals. Mm-hmm. 
And I just mentioned about the, the framework, uh, holistic uh, transport planning, because when we think about the future uh, mobility demands in India, we have to take into account the urbanization and the demographic uh, changes. Even for India, which is still in the very rapid economic growth, I think, uh, according to my knowledge, the demographic change has been uh, tremendously uh, big. I mean, people who live in urban, they reduce their uh, size of the family. So the public transport should be the big, big factor in the future transport uh, decarbonization. Uh, and also when you think about demographic change, how, how do you see the public transport in India can help to manage the demands and also reduce people's demands on the private vehicles? I think one, India does has been very strongly focusing on building uh, urban metro rail projects in many, in many major cities. And that's you know, uh, the Delhi Metro is a very good example, but you know, the, the, it's now moving, it's now come, it's coming to other cities uh, and, and the network is growing. And that also means that you'll have more and more people substituting some of the travel miles from cars to, you know, uh, urban rail. Um, and then we've also uh, been introducing, you know, so it's not just about vehicle electrification, but just putting electric uh, vehicles on the road uh, does not mean decarbonization, right? You need people to also actually use these modes of public transit to reduce uh, emissions. So, but but in it, so you know, over the years, one of the things in public transport buses, for example, you know, India started introducing low floor buses and then air conditioned buses on certain routes, etc. So, the, I mean, so the comfort of using public transit has also improved. But at the same time. India has, of course, last year announced one of the world's largest electric bus tenders of 55,000 buses uh, being procured one time pub, uh, in a public procurement order. And I think that's also is a strategy they're using to help bring down the costs of being able to deploy electric buses on the road and make it make that transition even more you know, affordable and viable. Uh, for those who depend on public transit, uh, so I think I think those are all different elements that are playing a key role in in that uh, in that transition. And and there is clearly a focus on being able to strengthen public transit, you know, with with uh, in different ways. And then of course the three wheeler story, as I said, is purely a, a wonderful story about the change about uh, the role of such vehicle form factors in strengthening, you know, first and last mile connectivity, but also converting them to electric. Kind of decarbonizing, you know, the process, the the the, the kind of the ecosystem uh, as a whole. So, how do you uh, explain the the national strategy of India to decarbonize its power system in order to uh, work with the transport sector decarbonization? Uh, no, sure, and I think and then this this goes back to the point I was making on India's uh, you know NDC submission as well. And I think the one thing that India has has announced as part of its updated NDC is to achieve about 50% cumulative uh, electricity installed capacity from non-fossil fuel-based energy resources by 2030, uh, which means that that is going to be dependent on a lot of deployment of solar and wind uh, and, and some level of hydro, um, right? And, 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 and that is definitely a key part of the strategy towards decarbonizing even the power sector. But I think also over the last eight or 10 years, India has actually uh, been able to really create a fairly good, vibrant regulatory ecosystem for renewables. 
uh, and we're seeing we're only seeing a growth in you know the deployment of that. I think where some of the challenges come uh, were more you know that there was a lot of installed capacity, but not a lot of renewables was actually getting into the grid, uh, and that was because you know of issues on the distribution infrastructure side and and the state of health of dis distribution companies um, and utilities. But but then you know they've still been making efforts to be able to reform some of that. So I think there is a lot of effort going on on that end, but. I must say, you know, for example, one of the one of the key bottlenecks often was uh, for if if there were any loads that were less than one megawatt, right? For example, charging stations or or some other major applications, uh, and if we wanted to kind of contract uh, renewable power, hundred percent renewable power directly for those applications, we could not do it because the regulation required it had to be minimum one megawatt. I'm now given to understand that that regulation has now been changed and that has been that has been brought down to 100 kilowatts so now what that means is that you can actually have like electric charging stations for evs etc that can actually source 100% re power uh, to to uh, to help kind of uh, for for charging which means that you're not just you know electrifying the end use but you're also uh, decarbonizing uh, the uh, the source of electricity itself mm -hmm. So before we close, I want to touch the international collaboration on the coal phasing out. And just a few weeks ago, um, the president of the South Africa just announced that plan. That means uh, that uh, bilateral multilateral collaboration has been uh, successful. So the, the amount of money is huge. It's 8.5 billion US dollar. Do you think India, the government of India might work with uh, industrialized country to phase out its coal consumption quickly, faster? Um, yeah, the phase down of coal is a tricky issue, right? So for, for economies like India, uh, I don't think we're not aver we're averse to the idea of phasing out coal. I think the issue is also that we should remember that, you know, a lot of these coal power plants, et cetera, which have existed over the years have also uh, have a strong... Uh, role to play in terms of the jobs they've created, the local economy they've driven, but but and so to to some extent, I think coal will play a role, and we're not saying no. But at the same time, you know, as we even phase out, I think the larger coal transitions and the just transitions framework, etc., will have to be contextualized and looked at from what it means for each of these countries, right? And I think uh, whether it's South Africa or Indonesia or India, all of these countries, I mean, they are among the top three, you know coal economies in terms of, you know, production and, and export of coal, but they also are countries that, you know, so so because of these local ecosystems that have evolved, we can't just close down power and forget. What does that mean for rehabilitating these workers, right? What, where do you, where, where do they go? What kind of skill sets do they have? Do you, uh, can they be employed? Because a, a just tran a transition, I mean, we call it a just transition. So a just transition needs to be just and needs to have an equity logic to it. And if we are decarbonizing in that process, we can't have, I mean, we should not have collateral damage of people who, who have existed in that ecosystem. So we have to find the right way to parallelly be able to move them to other streams and and or reskill them or whatever. So I think it, it's a more nuanced issue, uh, and I think it goes beyond just the simple goal of emission reduction or or, or mitigation, right? Yeah. And I think I think that is probably going to be a very key aspect uh, of the coal transition story or the power sector decarbonization story. And and you're right, there will be a need 
for, I mean, in addition to all the other climate finance narrative of technology and low carbon technologies, et cetera, I think there will need to be, a, and, and, and that's the thing, right? See, the, the coal transition story is interesting in the sense that in you need to be, you need to you need to phase out because you want to mitigate, but there is a very strong adaptation component to it because there is an economy and a set of people who are dependent on it. So how do you adapt them and move them out? So it's not just about adaptation for people who are affected by climate change, but these are also, I mean, directly in terms of the effects of climate change, but also in the journey towards mitigating the effects of climate change, there are people who are going to be affected. How do we help them adapt? And I think that's yeah. equally an important part of that coal transition story. Okay, that's great. And uh, I, that's close to our discussion by um, asking uh, what, what you just, just read, um, the nonfiction book. And uh, would you like to share the book, uh, main takeaway? You know, uh, actually, uh, that, that when, when you told me about this, that made me think. And, and it takes me back to um, one book that I came across about uh, well, late in my life, I must say, but about three years ago. Uh, that was called uh, Two Billion Cars, which was actually written by uh, Professor Dan Sperling and Deborah Gordon. And Dan Sperling is, you know, at, at ITS, UC Davis, where I am. But this was a book I came across before I came here. And, and um, the book was written back in 2010-11 um, and saying that, you know, we are already at a billion cars in the world and we are racing towards two billion cars. And there is a lot that we need to do. Uh, globally kind of push action on decarbonization of road transport. And that was still the early days of, you know, California's ZEP policy, et cetera, even in the US. And, and the book kind of talks about, you know, um, the different strategies that can be looked at for different, you know, for, for kind of meeting those goals of road transport decarbonization. And for back in its day, I think it was quite forward looking. What uh, struck me about this book was, a lot of those strategies are still very relevant, not just for developed economies, but also for developing economies, right? Because many countries have, in the last 10 years have kind of, you know, evolved and grown into very major markets for automotive sales, et cetera. And I think many of the insights of the book offers uh, has, still has relevance even a decade after it was written. So I think for me, this is something that I would still uh, recommend for anyone to read. Um, and I think what it does is it draws a lot on the California SF story, but also talks about the implications for uh, for global automotive uh, industry, talks about the need for not just government policy, but also the role of industry uh, as a key player in driving the transition. No, but you need industry also to play a proactive role in driving you know, technology, R&D, and costs, et cetera. So I think it, it, it kind of highlights a lot of that and, and still holds a lot of relevance. Uh, and today we are still, we're we're at about, what, one and a half billion cars or so on the road. So we're clearly going in that direction. Uh, so, uh, so, so I would, yes, I would definitely recommend any of the listeners to maybe actually pick up this book called Two Billion Cars by Dan Spurling to read. Great. I think this book is really relevant under the global energy crisis. You know, the fossil fuel price already... Uh, influencing everybody's life and daily life. The, the energy cost has been going up uh, very in a high level. So I think if, when we talk about the decarbonization, it's not about only the climate change, but also the uh, energy security and also our the livelihood uh, situation. So uh, Aditya, thank you so much for your uh, contribution. It's a very pleasure having discussion with you. I hope you, you research uh, at the UC Davis going well and uh, all the best thank you so much Ang, and uh, look forward to continuing the conversations yeah i hope to see you next time <laughs>